0: Hello, welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast, the podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Welcome to tonight's episode, where we'll be reading from The Scarlet Letter by American author. Nathaniel Hawthorne The book was published in 1850, and I will be reading from the introduction. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. I read a different story every episode to help you get a good night's rest. It is designed to play in the background as you slowly fall asleep. If you find yourself not enjoying the story, you're always welcome to try another one, and if it does help, please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I would like to say special thank you to Tig for your review on iTunes, and Brooke Taylor for your review on the CastBox podcast player. I'm glad Boy You to Sleep is helping you get a good night's rest. Before you doze off, and if you would be so kind, please take a quick moment to leave a review and rating in iTunes, or your podcast player of choice. You would be surprised at how helpful this is. It really does help me reach more people who need a good night's rest. You're always welcome to say hello, or support the podcast at BoreYouToSleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Custom House Introductory to the Scarlet Letter It is a little remarkable that, though disinclined, to talk over much of myself and my affairs at the fireside, and to my personal friends, an autobiographical impulse should twice in my life have taken possession of me in addressing the public. The first time was three or four years since when I favored the reader inexcusably, and for no earthly reason that either the indulgent reader or the intrusive author could imagine with the description of my way of life in the deep quietude of an old man's and now because beyond my deserts i was happy enough to find a listener or two on the former occasion i again seize the public by the button and talk of my three years' experience in a custom house. The example of the famous P.P. P. clerk of this parish was never more faithfully followed. The truth seems to be, however, that when he casts his leaves forth upon the wind, the author addresses, not the many who will fling aside his volume, or never take it up, but the few who will understand him better than most of his schoolmates or life-mates. Some authors, indeed, do far more than this, and indulge themselves in such confidential depths of revelation as could fittingly be addressed, only and exclusively to the one heart and mind of perfect sympathy, as if the printed book thrown at large on the wide world were certain to find out the divided segment of the writer's own nature and complete his circle of existence by bringing him into communion with it. It is scarcely decorous, however, to speak all, even where we speak impersonally, but as the thoughts are frozen and utterance benumbed, unless the speaker stand in some true relation with his audience, it may be pardonable to imagine that a friend, a kind and apprehensive though not the closest friend, is listening to our talk. And then a native reserve, being thawed by this genial consciousness, we may prate of the circumstances that lie around us, and even of ourselves, but still keep the inmost me behind its veil. To this extent, and within these limits, an author, methinks, may be autobiographical without violating either the reader's rights or his own. It will be seen, likewise, that this Custom House sketch has a certain propriety of a kind always recognized in literature as explaining how a large portion of the following pages came into my possession, and as offering proofs of the authenticity of a narrative therein contained. This, in fact, a desire to put myself in my true position as editor, or very little more, of the most prolix among the tales that make up my volume. This and no other is my true reason for assuming a personal relation with the public. In accomplishing the main purpose, it has appeared allowable by a few extra touches to give a faint representation of a mode of life not heretofore described, together with some of the characters that move in it, among whom the author happened to make one. In my native town of Salem, at the head of what half a century ago, in the days of old King Derby, was a bustling wharf but which is now burdened with decayed wooden warehouses and exhibits few or no symptoms of commercial life, except perhaps a bark or brig halfway down its melancholy length, discharging hides or nearer at hand, a Nova Scotia schooner pitching out her cargo of firewood, At the head, I say, of this dilapidated wharf, which the tide often overflows, and along which, at the base and in the rear of the row of buildings, the track of many languid years is seen in a border of unthrifty grass. Here with a view from its front windows adorn this not very enlivening prospect and thence across the harbour stands a spacious edifice of brick from the loftiest point of its roof during precisely three and a half hours of each forenoon floats or drops in breeze or calm the banner of the Republic but with the 13 stripes turned vertically instead of horizontally and thus indicating that a civil and not a military post of Uncle Sam's government is here established. Its front is ornamented with a portico of half a dozen wooden pillars supporting a balcony, beneath which a flight of wide granite steps descends towards the street. Over the entrance hovers an enormous specimen of the American Eagle, with outspread wings, a shield before her breast, and if I recollect all right a bunch of intermingled thunderbolts and barbed arrows in each claw. With the customary infirmity of temper that characterizes this unhappy fowl, she appears by the fierceness of her beak and eye, and the general trisulency of her attitude to threaten mischief to the inoffensive community and especially to warn all citizens, careful of their safety, against intruding on the premises which she overshadows with her wings. Nevertheless, vixenly as she looks, many people are seeking at this very moment to shelter themselves under the wing of the Federal Eagle Imagining, I presume, that her bosom has all the softness and snugness of an eider down pillow, but she has no great tenderness, even in her best of moods, and sooner or later, often more soon than late, is apt to fling off her nestlings with a scratch of her claw a dab of her beak, or a rankling wound from her barbed arrows. The pavement round about the above-described edifice, which we may as well name at once as the Custom House of the Port, has grass enough growing in its chinks to show, that it has not of late days been worn by any multitudinous resort of business. In some months of the year, however, there often chances a of forenoon when affairs move onward with a livelier tread. Such occasions might remind the elderly citizen of that period before the last war with England when Salem was a port by itself, not scorned as she is now by her own merchants and shipowners, who permit her wharves to crumble to ruin while their adventures go to swell needlessly and imperceptibly the mighty flood of commerce at New York or Boston On some such morning, when three or four vessels happen to arrive at once, usually from Africa or South America, or to be on the verge of their departure thitherward, there is a sound of frequent feet passing briskly up and down the granite steps. Here before his own wife, has greeted him, you may greet the sea-flushed shipmaster, just in port, with the vessel's papers under his arm, in a tarnished tin box. Here too comes his owner, cheerful or somber, gracious or in the sulks, accordingly, as his scheme of the now accomplished voyage has been realized in merchandise that will readily be turned to gold, or has buried him under a bulk of incommodities such as nobody will care to rid him of. Here, likewise, the germ of the wrinkle-browed, grisly-bearded, care-worn merchant, We have the smart young clerk who gets the taste of traffic as a wolf cub does of blood, and already sends adventurers into his master's ships, when he had better be sailing mimic boats upon a mill pond. Another figure in the scene is the outward bound sailor, in quest of a protection or the recently arrived one, pale and feeble, seeking a passport to the hospital. Nor must we forget the captains of the rusty little schooners that bring firewood from the British provinces, a rough-looking set of tarpaulins without the alertness of the Yankee aspect, but contributing an item of no slight importance to our decaying trade. Cluster all of these individuals together, as they sometimes were, with other miscellaneous ones to diversify the group, and for the time being, it made the Custom House a stirring scene. More frequently, however, on ascending the steps, you would discern in the entry if it were summer time, or in their appropriate rooms, if wintry or inclement weather, a row of venerable figures sitting in old-fashioned chairs, which were tipped on their hind legs back against the wall. Oftentimes they were asleep, but occasionally might be heard talking together, in voices between speech and a snore, and with the lack of energy that distinguishes the occupants of almshouses, and all other human beings who depend for substance on charity, on monopolized labor, or anything else but their own independent exertions. These old gentlemen seated, like Matthew, at the receipt of customs, but not very liable to be summoned thence, like him, for apostolic errands, were custom house officers. Furthermore, on the left hand, as you enter the front door, is a certain room or office, about fifteen feet square, and of a lofty height, with two of its arched windows commanding a view of the aforesaid dilapidated wharf, and the third looking across a narrow lane, and along a portion of Derby Street. All three give glimpses of the shops and grocers, blockmakers, slop sellers, and ship chandlers, around the doors of which are generally to be seen, laughing and gossiping, clusters of old salts, and such other wharf rats as haunt the whopping of a seaport. The room itself is cobwebbed and dingy with old paint, its floor is strewn with grey sand, in a fashion that has elsewhere fallen into long disuse. In the way of furniture, there is a stove with a voluminous funnel, an old pine desk with a three-legged stool behind it, two or three wood-bottom chairs, exceedingly decrepit and infirm, and not to forget the library... On some shelves a score or two of volumes of the Acts of Congress and a bulky digest of revenue laws. A tin pipe ascends through the ceiling and forms a medium of vocal communication with other parts of the edifice. And here, some six months ago, pacing from corner to corner, or lounging on the long-legged stool, with his elbow on the desk and his eyes wandering up and down the columns of the morning newspaper. You might have recognised, honoured reader, the same individual who welcomed you into his cheery little study, where the sunshine glimmered so pleasantly, through the willow branches on the western side of the old man's. But now should you go thither to seek him, you would inquire in vain for the locofoco surveyor, the basome of reform has swept out of his office, and a worthier successor wears his dignity and pockets his emoluments. This old town of Salem, my native place, though I have dwelt much away from it, both in boyhood and my more mature years, possesses or did possess a hold on my affections, the force of which I have never realised during my seasons of actual residence here. Indeed, so far as its physical aspect is concerned, with its flat, unvaried surface, covered chiefly with wooden houses, few or none of which pretend to architectural beauty, its irregularity which is neither picturesque nor quaint, but only tame, its long and lazy street lounging wearisomely through the whole extent of the peninsula, with Gallows Hill and New Guinea at one end, and a view of the almshouse at the other. Such being the features of my native town, it would be quite as reasonable to form a sentimental attachment to a disarranged checkerboard and yet, though invariably happiest elsewhere, there is within me a feeling for old Salem, which, in lack of a better phrase, I must be content to call affection. The sentiment is probably assignable to the deep and aged roots which my family has struck into the soil, it is now nearly two centuries and a quarter since the original Breton, the earliest emigrant of my name, made his appearance in the wild and forest-bordered settlement which has since become a city, and here his descendants have been born and died and have mingled their earthy substance with the soil until no small portion of it must necessarily be akin to the mortal frame wherewith. For a little while, I walk the streets. In part, therefore, the attachment which I speak of is the mere sensuous sympathy of dust for dust. Few of my countrymen can know what it is nor as frequent transplantation is perhaps better for the stock. Need they consider it desirable to know? But the sentiment has likewise its moral quality. The figure of that first ancestor, invested by family tradition with a dim and dusky grandeur, was present to my boyish imagination as far back as I can remember. It still haunts me, and induces a sort of home feeling with the past, which I scarcely claim in reference to the present phase of the town. I seem to have a stronger claim to a residence here on account of this grave, bearded, sable-cloaked and steeple-crowned progenitor, who came so early with his Bible and his sword, and trod the unworn street with such a stately port, and made so large a figure, as a man of war and peace, a stronger claim than for myself, whose name is seldom heard and my face hardly known. He was a soldier, legislator, Judge, he was a ruler in the church. He had all the Puritanic traits, both good and evil. He was likewise a bitter prosecutor as witness the Quakers who have remembered him in their histories and relate an incident of his hard severity towards a woman of their sect, which will last longer it is to be feared than any record of his better deeds, although these were many. His son, too, inherited the persecuting spirit and made himself so conspicuous in the martyrdom of the witches that their blood may fairly be said to have left a stain upon him. So deep a stain indeed that his old dry bones in the charter street burial ground must still retain it, if they have not crumpled utterly to dust. I know not whether these ancestors of mine bethought themselves to repent and ask pardon of heaven for their cruelties, or whether they are now groaning under the heavy consequences of them all, in another state of being. At all events, I, the present writer, as their representative, hereby take shame upon myself for their sakes, and pray that any curse incurred by them, as I have heard, and as the dreary and unprosperous condition of the race, for many a long year back, would argue to exist, maybe now and henceforth removed. Doubtless, however, either of these stern and black-browed Puritans would have thought it quite a sufficient retribution for his sins that after so long a lapse of years, the old trunk of the family tree, with so much venerable moss upon it, should have borne, at its topmost, boff, an idler like myself. No aim that I have ever cherished would they recognised as laudable, no success of mine, if my life, beyond its domestic scope, had ever been brightened by success, would they deem otherwise than worthless, if not positively disgraceful. What is he, murmurs one grey shadow of my forefathers to the other? A writer of story books. What kind of a business in life, what mode of glorifying God or being serviceable to mankind in his day and generation may that be? Why, the degenerate fellow might as well have been a fiddler. Such are the compliments bandied between my great grandsires and myself across the gulf of time. And yet, let them scorn me, as they will, strong traits of their nature have intertwined themselves with mine. Planted deep in the town's earliest infancy and childhood by these two earnest and energetic men, The race has ever since subsisted here, always, too, in respectability, never so far as I have known, disgraced by a single unworthy member, but seldom or never, on the other hand, after the two first generations performing any memorable deed, or so much as putting forward a claim to public notice. Gradually, they have sunk almost out of sight, as old houses here and there about the streets get covered halfway to the eaves by the accumulation of new soil. From father to son, for above a hundred years, they followed the sea, a grey-headed shipmaster in each generation, retiring from the quarter-deck to the homestead, while a boy of fourteen took the hereditary place before the mast, confronting the salt spray and the gale which had blasted against his sire and his grandsire. The boy also, in due time, Passed from the forecastle to the cabin, spent a tempestuous manhood, and returned from his world wanderings to grow old and die and mingle his dust with the natal earth. This long connection of a family with one spot as its place of birth and burial creates a kindred between the human being. And the locality quite independent of any charm in the scenery or moral circumstances that surround him. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy, and you're always welcome to listen to more episodes in the meantime. I look forward to bringing you a new episode very soon, and in the meantime, good night.